Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Anthropocene, the new era of the natural world that has become unnatural, because human activity now dictates what is happening and what happens next. It's suicide earth on steroids as mega droughts spark mega fires that have been burning for weeks now, not just in the American West, but also in Russia and Siberia. Melting permafrost will soon release huge amounts of methane, which will make our CO2 worries seem minuscule. Air pollution from those fires has prompted air quality warnings in New York City, 3,000 miles from the fires. I interviewed fiction author Edward Rubin about his book, The Heatstroke Line, in which his main premise was that the Earth's heat had become so catastrophic that only in places like Canada were there still livable conditions for humans. Enter the heat dome, and in one Canadian town, the temperature reached 121 degrees. A few days later, the entire town burned down in Canada. Most of the Earth's Fresh water has been contained in glaciers and Greenland and Antarctica and the North Pole. Well, the North Pole has become open water. Greenland and Antarctica have been melting at an ever-increasing pace, and all that fresh water is fast becoming seawater. And author Darjamail told me in an interview uh, for his book, The End of Ice, that all those glaciers that once upon a time were up in all those mountains... Well, they're almost all gone, too, which brings us to water and the water crisis, which, like the weather and the droughts and the fires and the floods, has suddenly come upon us in a flash. I'm sure all of this is happening much more quickly than even fiction author J.K. Ulrich imagined when she wrote her book Blue Karma six years ago. She foresaw a future where water is the main concern, where corporations had taken ownership of even the icebergs in the seas, at least the few of them that remained. People killed each other over water. Thanks for sharing some time with us, J.K. You obviously put a lot of thought into the future you wrote about over water. I'm thinking what's happening right now in the world is a lot sooner than you imagined. That's definitely true. I have thought over the idea for this story going back almost 20 years, if you can believe that. I was fortunate enough to grow up in a water-secure location and never had to think much about where my water came from. It was as ubiquitous as the air I breathe. It was always there. And around the time I would turn 14, the millennium drought hit Australia. And reading about those people's experiences put things in a new perspective for me. I started to think about what it would be like if water were not as readily available as it was for me. I got a little taste of that several years later when a hurricane in my town affected the municipal water supply. And for a day or two, nothing came out of our taps. 
Now, on the scope of global water crises, that is a very minor inconvenience. But to a 17-year-old who'd always had as much water as she cared to draw, that was, pun intended, a watershed moment. I remember seeing a glass of water on my nightstand that I'd left out the night before. And typically, that's something I would just toss down the drain. It's stale water. I don't want to drink it. But knowing that when I turned on the tap in the bathroom, nothing would come out. That leftover glass of water just gleamed in the sun coming through my window like a jewel. I can remember brushing my teeth with it because I didn't want to waste it. And standing there looking in the mirror, I think that's the moment that Blue Karma took root in my head because I started to think over the implications of water scarcity. What would happen to people my age who would probably bear the brunt of impact when water was no longer available. I just didn't have the courage to start writing the story until my mid-20s when I finally visited the American West. I drove through central California and saw those agricultural fields turning brown in the sun. I hiked through the desert biomes and realized that these environments were never meant to support the type of demands that our civilization is putting on them. And when I got home from that trip, that's when I started writing this book because I realized this is no longer some faraway fantasy concept. This is happening right now. This is happening in my own home country. This story needs to be told. It cannot wait. Just a small housekeeping item here. Uh, we are 15 hours apart on the globe right now. I'm in the central USA, and you're in what you call Oz, down under in Australia. <laughs> Yes, that's correct. I've been living here for about a year now, and it's a very interesting new perspective on my environmental philosophies. It's a nice full circle for this book as well because, as I mentioned, Australia's millennium droughts were an initial inspiration for this book. I actually planned to set it in Australia when I first started sketching out the idea as a teenager, but having never been, I didn't feel I could realistically portray this as a story setting. So getting to come here now and live here and compare the water crisis I left at home with the water challenges that Australia has dealt with for generations makes a very interesting counterpoint. Well, you're, but you are, you're an American, and your story takes I place in North America. Yes, it does. So give us, give us a, a summary of Blue Karma. I know it's considered a young adult selection, but so was the Hunger Games. Yeah, and I think it's a misjudgment for people to assume that because a book is aimed at a young adult audience that it's inherently juvenile. My, a lot of my favorite books, even now as a person in my mid-30s, are young adult novels because they have a way of conveying these larger themes in a very crystal clear and poignant way that resonates. So I am very thankful that Blue Karma seems to have transcended audience demographics and has found readers both adolescent and adult. So to give you a one-line summary of the book, in a drought-stricken future, three teenagers, a refugee ice poacher, an AWOL soldier, and the heir to a hydrology empire, fight to protect North America's dwindling water supply. And Seattle and I tried is... I uh, position these... 
No, please continue. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, and, and I shouldn't have even interrupted you. I'm sorry. I thought you were stopped there. But, but uh, Seattle has become new Seattle. Old Seattle is, uh, is essentially underwater, although some of the taller buildings, uh, people still live on the upper floors as refugees. Florida is, of course, gone. Uh, uh, and 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 people are the the. <laughs> I think the thing that really got me was uh, that uh, water has become so precious that there are there are criminals that are kidnapping people and rendering their bodies for their water content. Yeah, that might seem a little macabre. But I really wanted to emphasize the idea that human beings are about 70% water. It makes up so much of who we are physically and, by extension, supports who we are mentally and spiritually. So by destroying the and damaging the hydrologic cycle on our planet, it's almost a literal interpretation of your suicide earth concept. We are damaging this very thing that comprises ourselves and the the rather morbid idea of rendering water from human bodies to drink and sustain other human bodies was a way of illustrating that cycle in a very visceral way. Thankfully, that's one of the few parts of the story that I haven't had to see become nonfiction yet. (laughs) Hopefully, I never do. Okay, that was my question uh, uh, from from the outset. Was how far out did you envision this? I mean, you you obviously were peering into a possible future, and 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 thought that you know that your story was not so outlandish that you wouldn't tell it that that it could be a possible future. But how far into the future did you think it was? I typically don't set hard timelines for any of my science fiction novels because I feel that puts an expiration date on the idea. But in general, most of my stories only look a few decades out. I thought that oh. the events of Blue Karma could plausibly transpire maybe with, within the next 50 years. I certainly never expected to see so many of these things become reality only six years after I published the book. That that continues to astonish me every time I open the news and I read about water thieves in California and riots over water shortages that end up costing people's lives. I think I could not publish Blue Karma today as a fiction novel. It would seem like I just tore it straight out of the headlines. But at the time I wrote it, a lot of these things, at least for you know someone like me who lives in a water-secure suburban mid-Atlantic area, or at least I did at the time I wrote the book, you know, for someone like that, all of those concepts seem fantastical. And now they're the stuff of our daily newsfeed. Yeah. Uh, uh, the, the, uh, the, the story on CNN today, the headline today, thieves in California are stealing scarce water amid extreme drought, devastating some communities. <laughs> it's just nuts. Yeah, it was a really strange thing for me to read that story because so much of it echoed things that I thought I had invented for Blue Karma, the idea that thieves in these water trucks just 
roll up to a river or lake or even a fire hydrant in some of these instances, pump the water out and sell it on the black market. I read one news article that said impound lots are filling up with confiscated water trucks because this thievery is becoming so rampant. Where did, and there where was a that? corollary. That's in California as well. Really? Yeah. I'm just envisioning Whoa. rows of these tanker trucks, like the one that becomes the center of a, a skirmish midway through Blue Karma, just stretched across baking asphalt in California, impounded because law enforcement's struggling to, to keep up with the, the scale of this theft. Well, knowing that we were going to be doing this interview uh, on June 29th, I, I uh, endeavored to – I went to the Google News page, went to their science heading, and then I clicked Environment. And on that particular day, there were 88 stories uh, that, that they had up under Google Environment, 27 of those stories. That's 30% dealt with water. Wow. That's an alarming percentage. Uh, I, I was astounded. I mean, I just did it on a whim, and, and I was amazed when, when I found it. And, you know, talking about California, and, uh, I mean, we're going to talk. I, I have a list here uh, that I have made of all of the places in the world that, that are suffering right now with, with water problems. But California... Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm very interested to see that they, they say that the water witches are having trouble keeping up. Yeah, that was another story that struck me because, again, you know, the idea of relying on someone with seemingly supernatural powers to locate water is a, a theme I explore in Blue Karma. And I know that water divining is a tradition that goes back many years in many different cultures. But to me, as you know, a person who considers herself scientifically minded, it seems strange to rely on that in the year 2021. And yet I read the same reports that people are so desperate for water, they're no longer trusting geologists to do this work. They're turning to people with just unsubstantiated claims that they can, they can find water. Earlier this year, I think it was just last month, the, the governor of Utah encouraged his constituents to pray for rain to alleviate the drought. So these superstitious ideas persist. You know, I find it really perplexing that people who deny the idea that carbon emissions or poor resource management are to blame for droughts nonetheless believe in the power of prayer or divination to solve this problem. They're looking for some kind of deus ex machina solution. And I had fun playing with that concept in Blue Karma. I created this cult, if you will, of you know, religious people who base their faith around water and the how on an individual scale that motivates some characters to do good in their communities, but on a more community scale, it leads to a lot of misjudgment, negativity, and even violence because people are buying into these these superstitious ideas about water rather than relying on science to tell them the reality that 
this environment is not what it used to be, and we're going to have to change. I think the I think the female protagonist in your book was my favorite because she had been she had been flooded the Philippines. Uh, she talked about seeing the wave coming, and and the Philippines just got smashed, and so she lived along with her sister. They got out of the Philippines. Now she's now she ends up living in in what they call New Seattle because old Seattle's mostly underwater. And and uh, her uh, what she does uh, to 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 bring bread into the family is uh, she signs on to uh, uh, some of these boats which are illegally because the corporations have sewed everything up legally legally but it, these these uh, these these illegal boats go out to and find icebergs. And and she's uh, and she's a prolific climber, and so she can climb up these icebergs and and uh, using various tools, actually cut portions off, which then slide down, and the and the boat snags them and and melts them, puts them in their hold, and and uh, but it's it's a precarious uh, uh, job because you know she can certainly get hurt doing it, or uh, also as we found, get arrested. Yeah, I had a lot of fun writing that concept, but it expressed something much more serious. I wanted to explore the dichotomy of the human relationship with water, especially under the changing circumstances in which we now find ourselves. On one hand, you've got places that are just desiccated, and places like in the story, you know, California or Chicago, where there's not enough water to support the populace, but then you've got other places where the excess of water is the problem. I took a little creative license selecting the Philippines for my heroine's origin because that's actually not one of the places under the most immediate threat of sea level rise. But I'll, I chose that because I wanted a place that had some links to the U.S. so that she would plausibly end up here rather than, say, you know, Australia or Southeast Asia somewhere as a refugee. I wanted to play with the idea of statelessness. As climate change, in this case sea level rise, starts to erase entire nations, who ends up responsible for those people? They have to go somewhere, and it's going to be a challenge to find a place for them to reconstitute their lives. So I wanted to explore her experience as someone who can't rely on any kind of governmental structure to support her. She has to tap into these illegal industries just to make sure that she and her family have water to drink. And even though she's only 17 or 18 in the story, you know, a child by our legal standard, she has to resort to these dangerous professions just to survive, because nobody else is going to support her. And she's an environmental refugee, and of which uh, you made it very clear that the the entire world was now uh, suffering under an influx of 
environmental refugees. You call them NGs. And uh, uh, there, recently, there was a there was a, uh, a real story about the, some Pacific Islanders who have had to escape from their their home in the Pacific because of uh, sea level rise, and uh, the poor devils moved into the Pacific Northwest, and all of a sudden, they're you know they go from sea level rise to the heat dome. <laughs> That's a bit of a frying pan and fire situation there. Oh, yeah, yeah. But your book has a, a definitely a dichotomy. You've, uh, there's, there's, there's the haves and there's the have-nots, and it seems like most of the people are the have-nots. Yeah, and unfortunately I think that trend is going to continue. The idea of environmental refugees was not entirely my own. That was already emergent in current events at the time I started conceptualizing the story. But it was more of a, I think something that we looked at as an incidental rather than a problem unto itself. But now I think there's realization that climate change will be a massive driver of human migration. There is an Australian-based think tank that released a report last year estimating that over a billion people around the world will be displaced by 2050 because of various climate impacts. Now, given that the global population is only expected to be around 10 billion by 2050, that's more than 10% of the entire human species that is expected to be driven away from its locations by climate. And unfortunately, more than those that. places projected, yeah, probably more than that. That's probably a conservative estimate. But the places likely to have the worst impact are those that can least afford to overcome it. It's, you know, developing nations. It's South Asia. It's Sub-Saharan Africa. It's the Middle East. It's places that don't have the resources to be resilient in the face of these climate changes. And well, that's why that's I why environmental justice has become such a uh, such a, a large part of all future planning for uh, climate crisis uh, uh, plans uh, and and legislation and everything else. Environmental justice uh, is is part and parcel of it all now. I think because we 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 want to avoid all those haves and have-nots. Yeah, and it should be. There's talk of water and clean access to clean water being a human right, and it's one that many people on the planet today don't enjoy. But I think until we have a better vocabulary to talk about these things, it's going to be more difficult for everyday people like myself to recognize and act on the problem. It's funny, you had mentioned that you enjoyed the portmanteau NG that I coined for the story. And I did a little research out of curiosity to see, you know, in the decades since I started writing this book, has there emerged a preferred term that's actually being used for this concept in, you know, legal or political circles. And I found that the, who is it now? Oh, the UNHCR, the United Nations Human 
Rights Council doesn't really care for the term environmental refugee. They feel it's more accurate to use the phrase, and I'll quote you here because this made me smile, persons displaced in the context of disasters and climate change. Now, that's kind of a mouthful. People aren't going to <laughs> latch on to that as you know, a readily communicable concept. We're living in an age where everything has to sit behind a hashtag. People need yeah. linguistic shortcuts for these ideas. And even though a word like NG is not necessarily fully accurate or even elegant, it's the type of you know, heuristic that people will use to to invoke an idea and if it gets people to start recognizing that this is a problem of grand scale that's only going to accelerate you know i think that's the type of meme-ish language you might have to resort to just to communicate the severity of this problem yeah they're saying that future wars uh that that the future wars could well be over water and not oil. Boy, we better never have another war over oil because let's 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 be clear, it is it is the burning of fossil fuels for the last hundred years which has gotten us here. It's the burning of fossil fuels that which is continuing, which is exacerbating the situation and, and making it even worse. Uh I'm I'm uh <laughs> Uh, I, I just had to say that, but uh, but uh, yeah, it, it astounds but, me that people are still in denial about that, but they are. But I, I've also done some some uh, some checking around on on the water issues worldwide, and uh, you know uh, the Twin Cities are pretty close to where I am, and uh, they they have instituted water restrictions in Minnesota and the Twin Cities because of a drought. Uh, the in Virginia, the inspector general there has urged uh, uh, the creation of an office of drinking water. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, and, uh, thousands of wells could run dry in California. Uh, Scotland has Scotland has issued an early warning about water because of uh, their dry summer. Even South Florida uh, has, has issued a water shortage warning because uh, you, you would think a place like that would never run out of water, but their, their, their aquifers are, uh, are pretty close to the surface. And, and uh, I, I, I don't Wait, know. That's what's it's, so... And so it's deeply distressing that so many places that are not accustomed to having to think about water in any structured, finite way are now experiencing these problems. You know, as devastating as the situation is in the American West, for example, it doesn't necessarily surprise anyone because that region has always been arid. I mean, going back to the ancestral Pueblo people, uh, water shortages and droughts have influenced the human ability to live in that ecosystem. But for places like South Florida, like you just mentioned, or Virginia, that's actually where I grew up. And when I was small, the closest you ever got to a drought problem was it gets hot in the summer, it doesn't rain for a few weeks, and the municipal government 
government asks everyone to please not water their lawns. So the idea that they now are driven to create an office of drinking water to <laughs> address this problem. And one yeah. way that's very positive because they've recognized that we have an issue, we need to take some action. Yes. But in another way, it's, it's deeply distressing because the situation has devolved to the point where that's necessary. Yeah. One of the venues in But your we definitely book, need Chicago. more municipal involvement and political, local political advocacy for these things because I find it very cruelly ironic that in America, more funding goes to support international water aid than it then towards building and maintaining municipal water infrastructure for Americans. I mean, they're both worthy that, causes, but you've got people in Appalachia who don't have running water and they're reduced to collecting their drinking water from springs and wells that have been badly contaminated by the fracking industry. And yet these people don't have any water infrastructure like many of us, myself included, enjoy. Absolutely. I can verify that. I saw a story to that effect not too long ago. Uh, in your in your book, uh, one of your venues is Chicago. You talked about the how they would walk out into Lake Michigan because it was just a dry bed. You know, even the Great Lakes, uh, the levels are still good at, at, uh, in the American Great Lakes, but they are they're declining. Uh, some of the other places that, that I noted, uh, in Mexico, the crops are at risk because of drought. Manitoba, Manitoba has record low precipitation. Northern Ireland has put out a water warning. Uh, Jordan is in a water crisis. Uh, Iran, uh, is, it's the driest oh been God, there in 50 years. Oh, my God, civil unrest and protests in Iran over the water shortages, and people, people have died. People have been, yes, exactly, people have died in, in Iran. And in southern and central Brazil, it's the worst drought in 100 years, basically because of deforestation and climate change. Yeah, this is no longer a phenomenon that's localized to equatorial regions or arid regions. This is a trend that's global. You've got places like China and Germany that are getting, you know, years worth of water in a matter of days, and then you've got places that are quite literally drying up. I mean, Lake Mead is at its lowest point since construction in the 1930s. And Lake Powell is so low that they say another five feet of decline will make it no longer accessible to watercraft. I mean, you've they got, again, this height. dichotomy of either too much or too little water all over the world. It's like we're wildly out of balance. Yeah, they shut down the uh, the hydroelectric dam at Lake Oroville because there's there's hardly any water left in Lake Oroville at all in California. Other places, uh, Taiwan. Is, is suffering a drought. Uh, Istanbul, Turkey, is in trouble. Cuba has, is having water problems. And, uh, and over in, in Asia, uh, China could be, uh, boy, they're, they're acting really like the hegemon. They, the Tibetan Plateau... <laughs> Uh, controls uh, uh, waters, uh, sends water to 18 countries, over 2 billion people, and China and its dams, they're, they, they're starting to demand tribute for water. And that's a little ironic because it's the construction of dams like that that has 
disrupted the floodplains and the natural ecosystem to the extent that the droughts and the floods are as severe as they are. But tribute in the form of water, that's almost it's almost like a primitive tribal thing to think oh, that, yeah. you know, our, our species that considers itself so advanced has to revert to that kind of sheer elemental exchange is, <laughs> I, I would laugh at it if it weren't so distressing. Well, China's been doing that uh, throughout its entire history with all of the countries surrounding it. That's that's what Vietnam was all about because uh, China uh, China was was in and out of Vietnam for a thousand years. They they they'd go into Vietnam and they'd they'd kick their butts and they'd say, "Okay, you got to pay us tribute." And the Vietnamese would, uh, you know, they'd just kind of look the other way and do what they had to do and. And and after uh, uh, after you know a few decades, uh, they they would make it so untenable <laughs> for the Chinese to be there. The Chinese would just say, "Oh, screw it," and they'd leave again. But then they'd always come back <laughs> and do it again. The Vietnamese has been kicking people out of their country uh, uh, forever. But uh, what, what do you think? Okay, what do you, that, that's do, just the, the human way. We always fight over resources, but. Typically, we don't think of wars over water. We think of wars over yeah. oil or even you know, farmland or gold or something like that. But over this single, yeah, over the single most essential resource. You know, I think the remark you made earlier is very astute. I fully believe that our future wars will fight, will be fought over water, and in the current environment of rising nationalism combined with the projected influx of all of these displaced people, that's a recipe for a very troubling scenario. So do you think, uh, do you think uh, our technology can, can get us out of this one? Do you think that they'll, they'll finally figure out quick and easy and, and prodigious uh, ways to uh, desalinate? desalinization of, of uh, the, the ocean so that we can continually have fresh water? Quick and easy, no. I don't think our path is going to be that straightforward. But I do think that we have technological options for at least mitigating the problem and buying ourselves a longer time scale to implement a better and more sustainable strategy. Water desalination is an interesting problem because on one hand, yes, it provides fresh water that people need, but there are environmental problems with that as well. You're changing the ecosystem by spewing more concentrated salt water into it. It takes energy and resources to produce that water. So it's not an ideal solution for all places necessarily. Cloud seeding has been around since the middle of the 20th century and I referenced it once or twice in Blue Karma. At the time I wrote it, the traditional method of using silver iodide to change the composition of clouds was still the only method available. But I read a really interesting bit of research just a few days ago that some scientists are experimenting with drones that deliver electrical currents into clouds to stimulate rainfall. So this the has United the Arab Emirates. As, yeah, it has the same effect as cloud seeding, but without the 
pollution side effects of the silver iodide. I thought that was potentially a really interesting and, you know, low pollution approach to problem. But then you run into the issue of stimulating rain in places that environmentally are not equipped to handle it. I mean, look at a place like Oman that's currently in a terrible drought. They got, no, sorry, they had floods. They had two years worth of rain in two days. And, you know, a place like that is fairly arid. That landscape can't necessarily absorb a lot of water very quickly. And if you can't just control how much rain you're getting out of those clouds, you could end up flooding your town instead of letting it dry out. So it's, it's a delicate balance that I don't think humans are very good at negotiating. Yeah. Oh. Well, I want to thank you. I for think our talk. best... Oh, I want to thank ahead. you for finding it and, and discovering it. For independent authors, it's always a challenge to, to make ourselves and our stories known. So I'm really flattered that you found it and you thought highly enough of it to invite me on the show. Well, I just happened to cross it. Uh, uh, I didn't know anything about it when I, when I found it. And, uh, and as soon as I read it, I knew it was going to fit perfectly into my plans here with Suicide Earth. because uh, and, and just since... Uh, since we made our our arrangements, the the the, the whole water situation has just exploded you know, around the world, hasn't it? Yeah, we could not be having this discussion at a more opportune time. But it's almost uncomfortable for me, having thought up this idea 20 years ago, having written the book and published it six years ago, to see so many of these elements now coming true. I don't think many sci-fi authors really want to see their visions realized. I mean, we write these stories that have dystopian elements to them as a thought experiment, as a warning, as a cautionary tale. And, and I'm less, uh, less nihilistic than some authors. I try to conclude my stories with a hopeful note that even though some sacrifice is required, there's still an opportunity for us to improve things. But sometimes it's hard for me to maintain that outlook when I see headlines like the ones we've discussed today, the ones that have blazed across headlines for the past two months. And you think, oh my gosh, this entire situation transpired decades before I ever expected it would. And I'm not even a scientist. Full disclosure, I have an English degree. I'm just a curious person with a knack for analysis and strategic projection. So if someone with my unimpressive credentials can do some research and come to the conclusion that this is a serious problem, then surely brighter and more well-credentialed minds than myself can recognize this is an issue, we need to deal with it, and find a way to convince the people in power to take appropriate action. There's the rub. There's the rub. Yeah, and at I this love, point, I don't I, think we can rely on those people to do anything about no. it. I think it's going to come down to small choices by masses of people that lead to cumulative improvements. I think it's on us. Yeah. 
I, I love reading science fiction, but it, it really hits home when you realize this isn't just a, a made-up tale, but could possibly be the real future facing us. I know you've written other science fiction books, but what's the likelihood we'll see more of this climate crisis fiction from you? So far, you've hit pretty close All to All of my work has climate elements to it, in part because just from a purely science fiction craft standpoint, I think that is the most realistic threat that we have to deal with from a scientific perspective. It's a source of endless narrative potential, but also because it's something that I as a person feel very strongly about. And writing being one of the only viable skills that I have, it's my means of advocacy. It's how I can make some very small contribution to the public attitude and hopefully try to inspire some change. So even though my second book was not as overtly climate-focused, the scientific underpinnings were definitely rooted in climate change. And the project I'm working on now takes place against a backdrop of climate change, this time in my native area of the the American Mid-Atlantic. And it looks at the human health and public health crises that are already starting to transpire as a result of these environmental changes. So I don't think you would ever see a science fiction novel from me that did not have some ecological theme woven into the narrative. It's just okay. too important for me to abandon. I have a suspicion that Blue Karma may become one of those examples of extreme prescience. It's already an award winner, yes? Yes, but at a very modest level. I chose to publish independently, and that makes it difficult to get a lot of visibility for your novel. But it won several independent publishing awards, including one I'm particularly proud of, which was the 2015 Library Journal Selfie Award. And that award looks specifically at electronic fiction published by independent authors. And Library Journal is, of course, a very well-regarded institution. So to have them you know, recognize my book as worthy of mention and you know, worthy of appearing in libraries, which is a place where I grew up. I spent most of my childhood wandering the library stack, so that just has a lot of personal significance to me. That was a, a really gratifying recognition for Blue Karma. Well, I don't think you're going to have to worry about being insecure anymore. So I'm, I'm, I'm definitely going to be watching for your, your next book. Uh, best of luck to you, Jay. Oh, thank thanks you. For, thanks for sharing your time, your book, and your climate concerns with us here. Thanks for having me. Okay. The name of the book is Blue Karma. The author is J.K. Ulrich. You know how to find it, and I recommend it for an easy, quick read that will make you start thinking about the next item on our climate crisis agenda. And it'll probably heighten your self-awareness the next time you water your lawn. That's already happened at my house. This book may have been written for young adults, but anyone who enjoyed The Hunger Games will like this as well. So, we humans continue our steady march toward the total degradation of the planet. Now, on top of everything else, we're running out of water. It's suicide earth. But we're not just killing us. 